Hello and welcome to Expert Opinion ENT podcast series. This is Dan Robinson and today I'm talking to Dr. Larry Kalish, who's a Sydney-based rhinologist. He's currently the head of uh, Concord Hospital ENT department and also the uh, chair for ASONS in New South Wales. Larry's extensively published and in particular, Dr. Kalish has published the Cochrane Review on both intranasal steroids for polyposis as well as intranasal steroids for non-polyposis. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. So, Larry, to start with, we're talking about intranasal steroids today, and I was wondering if you could tell us what are intranasal steroids and what's the pharmacological basis for their use? So, essentially, an intranasal steroid is uh, the most potent anti-inflammatory molecule we have it exerts its effect through intracellular activation of a receptor called the glucocorticoid receptor that's within the cell itself. And it does it through a combination of effects, and that's why it's so potent. It works by both reducing pro-inflammatory markers, increasing anti-inflammatory gene transcription, and also has a major effect on a number of the airway inflammatory cells. So it will reduce inflammatory cells such as eosinophils, T-lymphocells, mast cells, which play such an important role, especially in rhinitis and airway disease. And it also has a big effect on producing or reducing, I should say, pro-inflammatory mediators, which also would be driving factors behind a lot of the inflammatory disorders we see in the nose. Are you able to run through what some of the side effects of these products may be in intranasal steroids? So when we're looking at topical intranasal steroids, their profiles tend to be very well tolerated. Generally, most of the side effects relate to just the application. So depending on the type of application, patients can get uh, trauma to the front of their nose, local irritation, and bleeding. The steroid itself, as you know, has a variety of systemic side effects, but the vast majority of topical uh, products we use are not systemically absorbed. And because they're not systemically absorbed, the actual effects on the body that we see with other oral steroids are not as evident. Saying that, we do have patients who are acutely sensitive and a variety of, of, of uh, complications have been noted. Patients can complain of headaches, bad taste. Some patients can get local thrush in the back of their throat, especially with the, the drops. Long-term use um, has been attributed to, to um, atrophy in the vocal cords, very rarely. There's been no evidence of atrophy within the nasal mucosa itself. That's actually a, a myth perpetuated by the fact that topical steroids on the skin break down um, or cause atrophy of the skin. And that's because skin is keratinized, as you know, and topical or a steroid will actually break down keratin. Intranasal use has only been shown to enhance mucosal health rather than break it down because it's a pseudostratified ciliated epithelia rather than keratinized. So I suppose just in summary, local trauma mainly nosebleeds, local systemic effects such as pain, discomfort, and headaches, and very rarely systemic effects with maybe bigger doses or the uh, old-fashioned topical steroids. And Larry, what are the different options for intranasal steroids which are available to ENT surgeons in Australia? So there's a whole variety of the older and newer class. Obviously, we started with dexamethasone. Dexamethasone has a very high systemic absorption. It's not that effective. As a result, there were a number of newer steroids which were produced. The older types, but still very effective, were butazonide 
and flunizolide. Flunizolide is rarely used in Australia anymore. Budizonide is commonly used, and we'll talk about it a little bit later with the way we deliver high doses of steroids into the nose. The newer generations are mimetazone furiate, fluticasone propionate, or fluticasone furiate, which is basically the flixinase drops versus the avamus, the avamus being the furiate. And then the latest one on the market is cyclizonide, which is the topical omnaris. There are a lot of variety between the steroids, as in their formulation. And what a lot of people don't understand is that in order to deliver a steroid, you have to be able to deliver it with a preservative so that it's sustained, it doesn't get secondarily infected, and that in a form which we can actually deliver it to the nose. So we look at a steroid both in obviously the content, the type of steroid, and I've just named the most common types, but also we look at things like tonicity. And what we find is in Australia, all of them are isotonic to normal mucosa, with cyclizonide being the only one which is hypotonic. What does that mean? Well, they think that a hypertonicity allows for quicker absorption into the mucosal layer, into the mucosal gel, and better retention inside the nose. The next thing is a lot of these will have preservatives. And this is something which is poorly understand by a lot of our colleagues. And the most common one is benzalkonium chloride. Now, benzalkonium chloride is a preservative with known irritative effects in a number of patients. So people can have mucociliary uh, stasis, they can have headaches, they can have quite bad side effects from the benzalkonium chloride. And it's not infrequent people who have an allergic reaction to topical steroid. And it's more commonly the benzalkonium chloride rather than, um, than the steroid itself. And we know that budizonide or the rhinocort in Australia and the omnaris or cyclinazide are the only two which don't have benzalkonium chloride. The problem is then they need something else. And the most common thing they have is a polysorbate. Now, polysorbate is also usually well-tolerated and safe, but it's often one of the reasons why you get a lot of drying in the nose. And again, the only one is which is polysorbate-free is, again, the Omnaris brand. Um, alcohol is also contained as a carrier in a number of the drugs. The old formulation of omeprazone used to contain alcohol, which a lot of patients found was drying and bleeding. And some of the newer formulations... I, well, I should say the flunizolide, the older formulation, but some of the flixinase drops may contain an alcohol preparation. And Larry, what are, in general, the indications for intranasal steroids? Well, an intranasal steroid, as we said, is an anti-inflammatory. And we know that most things we deal with in the night, whether it's rhinitis or sinusitis, or inflammatory disease. So almost all types of inflammation in the nose, starting from the beginning, whether it's allergic or non-allergic rhinitis, an acute recurrent or chronic rhinosinusitis, you know, topical steroids are, are indicated. And in fact, it's quite amazing when you look at the research and more importantly in the overall reviews and look what evidence do we have when we look at allergic rhinitis, level one or grade A level, uh, grade A uh, uh, recommendations, topical steroids. When we look at acute recurrent sinusitis, there's no evidence to show that topical steroids, two sprays morning and night, are more effective than a dose of amoxil in a randomized control trial. So in acute recurrent, it is indicated. And then in the chronic rhinosinusitis, the only uh, medication with a level, a or level 1 or grade 8 recommendation is a topical intranasal steroid. In fact, in chronic rhinosinusitis without polyps, oral steroids do not have the same grading as a topical intranasal steroid. So across the board, in a lot of inflammatory disorders in the <coughs> nose, they are well indicated. What are the different modes of delivery which are available for delivery of these intranasal steroid products? So just to break it down, generally, they tend to be in a meter dose spray or in a droplet form. 
the vast majority in Australia are going to be meter dose sprays. Again, going back to the delivery system, there are a number of different ways of trying to deliver it more effectively. So um, the, the commonest one is going to be an aqueous pump spray, but there are a number of companies coming out with uh, trying to aerosolize it a little bit better to deliver it into the nose. So most of us use an aqueous pump spray or a meter dose spray in order to deliver the uh, steroid to the nose. Drops, I find, can be effective, mainly because we can have a higher volume, uh, which often uh, correlates also with a higher dosage into the nose. The only form of drops available in Australia is flixinase, and that's because, which is a fluticasone propionate, and that's because we have quite strict laws about using a dropper. A dropper is effectively not sterile. It has to be, for the TGA, always contained within a sterile pack. So flixinase come in individual packs, a meter dose spray, obviously a release, just a, a certain volume at each time. Overseas, they have a lot of droppers where they have a bottle where you can put the dropper in and remove it. That's not allowed under our TGA laws and restrictions. We do use a lot of off-label steroids, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, again, to emphasize those off-labels, that's our ENT surgeons using them either in droplet washers or creams directly into the nose for other reasons. Are you able to briefly cover the evidence for the use of intranasal steroids? You've already touched on this in relation to allergic rhinitis and rhinosinusitis. So again, I mean, the evidence is as strong as we can get. So my experience has been in the, looking at Cochrane reviews at intranasal steroids in both chronic rhinosinusitis with and without polyps. And quite overwhelmingly, there is level one, you know, systematic reviews indicating that they are very effective. Obviously, analysing the data, there's a lot of what we call heterogeneity, a lot of noise in the data, and the interesting thing was to try and go through it and find out why isn't there just a consistent finding that all steroids are useful in the nose. As I always tell a lot of my patients, you know, or pharmacists or other doctors, if steroids were that useful, um, you know, there would be no role for us. And we find from analyzing the data that it's that steroids themselves are very effective. The problem is delivering the steroids to where they want to go. So when we look for and try and sort out the noise in the data, what we see, and we've published on this as well, is that the inability to deliver steroids to where they need to go is the most common reason why they're not effective. I think the evidence to suggest that they are effective and safe is quite overwhelming at the moment. The problem is, are we delivering the steroids to where they need to go? And case in point would be a patient with grade 3 inflammatory polyps. What is the likelihood that a topical steroid spray is actually going to have any effect on that patient? Larry, you touched on before the hypotonicity of uh, seclesinide, which is available in Australia. Is there evidence to support this as being more beneficial over other steroids? So one of the things we find with steroids use or determination is that they're all quite equivocal. So why does one patient like one more than another? Well, there are certain really basic things which, which we always want to uh, uh, monitor. People rank their steroids, not necessarily how effective they are, but on things like taste, on nose runouts, on throat rundown, the smell and the feel. And everybody's different. We all like different wines. We like different foods. We, we, you know, we have different preferences and patients are no different. So where does the hypertonicity help? Well, the hypertonicity has been shown in animal models, at least in rats, to retain the um, steroid in the nose for longer. Less run out at the back of the nose, less run out in the front of the nose. And because it's, it's absorbed, less aftertaste. So the patient preference from Norris 
seems to be that they don't have as bad a taste in the back of the throat or taste bad taste overall or discharge at the front of the nose. However, it becomes patient preference and it becomes more complicated. Obviously, the different types of, of uh, preservatives, whether they've got benzoconium chloride or polysorbate in the uh, steroid, will affect the taste. We know that different people have different taste receptors. For instance, when we look at the antihistamines, azelestine has a very bitter taste in a majority of, on a minority of patients. I'm one of them. Because I'm one of them, when I spray that in my nose, it gives me an awful taste and I feel nauseous. So I can't tolerate it. Doesn't mean it isn't an incredibly effective treatment in as an antihistamine. Same with a lot of the steroids. We will have patients who will say, you know, every time I gave, use one type of steroid, I get a terrible taste in the back of my throat, gives me headaches, burning sensation, sore throat. And all you have to do is change it to another type and suddenly the patient tolerates it a lot better. Moving on to post-operative patients, uh, when do you start intranasal steroids post-operatively? Again, obviously, is, is, is depends on the operation. So let's just break it down to a full-out sinus surgery for a patient either who's had chronic sinusitis with or without polyps. Most of those patients in my hands get post-operative oral steroids and are treated with a sinus spacer. In other words, part of the erythmoid cavities are filled with a mirror cell pack with a non-latex glove around it, and I insert dexamethasone to fill it up and hopefully elute over time. So I personally do not start my topical steroids until that has been removed. So it's usually at about day seven. However, I believe the evidence suggests that the most effective time is immediately after the operation. However, what you want to know is, are you delivering the steroid? That's the fundamental and there's a lot of evidence to suggest topical sprays and drops are effective. But at the same time, when you really look at the studies, when you look at the cadaver studies, when you look at the distribution studies, what we know is that topical sprays, topical drops do not get into the sinuses. So my feelings postoperatively is first week they have a steroid eluting stent. It's removed. And as I start to wean the oral steroids, I start to increase the topical steroids. And to me, if I'm going to deliver a topical steroid to the nose, it needs to be in the form of a wash. So I use an off-label drug, which is a budesonide nebule, 1,000 uh, milligrams in a 2 mil ampule, placed into a wash bottle with the salt sachet, very important, just the, palm, just the budesonide and the water burns like buggery. Okay, so the patient must be emphasized a water, sachet, plus the budesonide nasal, and we deliver it into the nose. And great studies have shown that 95% of that lands up in the sink. So in other words, we're delivering only about 50 micrograms of steroid into the nose. But what we are doing is delivering it directly into the sinuses. So it's not a high dose, but it's a, a good way to deliver the steroid directly to the sinuses. So my aftercare or postoperative care is using a budesonide wash one week after I've removed the spaces and only after I start reducing the oral steroid. When would you change someone, or would you change someone, from using a budesonide wash to a spray such as uh, Omnaris or uh, another such product? Okay. Postoperatively. Again, always take a step back. Patients obviously worked up preoperatively. We try and assess whether they're polyps or non-polyps. At the time of surgery, all my patients have a biopsy. The biopsy is then sent away, and we do the St. Vincent Synoptic Report, which gives me an indication whether this patient's eosinophilic in nature and the degree of inflammation in the nose. At the same time, different patients, maybe they're asthmatic, aspirin-sensitive, Samtus triad, 
uh, known staph um, biopsy, uh, allergic fungal sinusitis, any of the patients in the grossly eosinophilic nature, the answer is never. I maintain them on pommel cord washers for years before I am game to switch them to a steroid spray. But in a patient who's non-asthmatic, not aspirin sensitive, who may or may not have polyps, but their histology shows that they are non-eosinophilic, so lymphoplasmacytic type infiltration, not so grossly inflamed, when they are at the six-week mark, that's the first time I judge it, if I'm happy that the sinuses have settled, the mucosa looks good, the patient's happy, I'm then going to convert them to a topical steroid, sorry, to a steroid spray with a view to stop the spray in about six weeks after that. And the thinking behind that is often these patients have, surgery has effectively cured or improved them significantly. And if there is an underlying rhinitis, an allergic rhinitis or some form of low-grade inflammation, simply addressing the nasal component is enough to maintain their disease. So the decision is made not at six weeks I've changed them. It's always patient-based factors. And it's always after I've assessed them. So I've had patients with lymphoplasmacytic disease, but at six weeks, still a little bit inflamed, not really happy. I could happily continue another six weeks of, uh, of the butazenide washes. What is the role, Larry, of topicalization with intranasal steroid creams within the nose, and where does that fit into your practice? Hmm. The only steroid that I routinely use that is safe is a diprazonum or metazone OV because it's a mucosal uh, formulation. There are steroid gels and foams used by colorectal surgeons which I'm aware other surgeons will use. Um, occasionally, uh, Maxidex, Sofradex, so steroid or dexamethasone uh, or flunizolite steroids or even methylprednisolone steroids can be mixed into washes and delivered. But in my practice, I've had great success using the diprazone OV or the mometazone cream. And the way I use it is it's a, a reasonably thick cream which I can actually put into the sinuses, and I actually allow it to help irrigate the sinus. So if I get a patient a year, two years post-major sinus surgery and have an eosinophilic flare-up, I'll debride their nose, but occasionally there's periods, sections of their frontal and maxillary sinuses I can't get access to. So rather than doing a saline rinse in my rooms, I find they're very messy and patients don't tolerate it well, I do a diprazone rinse. So I basically put the uh, diprazone in a 10-mil syringe, and I try and move or, 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 or get it past the, the eosinophilic material and help that to get rid of it. I call it a diprazone debridement. I'm also using diprazone extensively in tight frontal sinuses where I've got good access, but I'm not happy with the recess. Maybe there's a little bit of trauma or inflammation. And what I do is I fill up the frontal sinuses with diprazone and allow the diprazone to loot out over a course of you know, hours or days. And unfortunately, this is a podcast, I can't show you videos, but we have some fantastic videos to show the improvement made within a week of purely using topical diprazone debridement in my rooms. You've mentioned adding budesonide to a wash bottle. Are there any other steroids that uh, you're aware of people adding to wash bottles with with efficacy? Well, diprazone can be diluted into a wash bottle. Um, I find it more expensive. You use about a centimetre of it into the wash bottle. It is water-soluble and can be broken down. Um, again, I know others are adding um, preparations such as Tobradex or, or Maxidex into the wash bottle, but I, I've not as as much effect as I have with budesonide. The budesonide is a reliable dose of steroid. The diprazone is a reliable way to deliver steroids directly to the nose. I, I should 
just advocate that diprazone has an awful taste and a burning sensation in the back of their throat. So when I do put it in the nose, I always watch the cavity for a few minutes afterwards and suction out as much of the excess as possible. And I'll warn the patient they may get a quite a bitter or burning sensation in the back of their throat over the course of the next few days. Larry, thank you very much for your time for the interview this evening. Just a final passing note. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add in relation to intranasal steroids within the nose or another uh, point which you'd like to emphasise which we may not have covered uh, here tonight? So one of the things I don't think we really discussed is actually dosage. So what we'll find is that there's a lot of evidence to show the bigger the dose, the better. And we know that the topical steroid uh, is systemically, very little is systemically absorbed. So we find that the bigger dose are reasonably safe. The evidence showed that, as I mentioned earlier, that two sprays of a mametazone product twice a day was more effective than a moxyl. Once, two sprays once a day was only as effective as a moxyl. So that is one of the indications that the bigger the dose, the better. A lot of the studies I reviewed, I was quite shocked to see the actual dosage that was being used. For instance, people will often say, you know, uh, flixinase is very effective and they cite a few papers. But when you looked at the papers, they were using as much as 400 micrograms twice a day. Now, flixinase in the current formulation in Australia comes in a 27.5 microgram dosage. So work that out. 400 microgram twice a day is what, eight or more <laughs> sprays a nose. So sometimes we're underdosing our patients. So the most important thing is to think about how much are you actually giving the patients. And that is why I'm a big, I like drops. The flexinase drops that we have in, in, in Australia are 400 micrograms. I appreciate that drops are probably no better at getting into the sinuses than a spray is. But a drop in my practice in an open sinus is likely to get up into the frontal sinus in a certain position, either Moffat's leaning all the way forward or Margand leaning all the way back off the end of the bed. So we could use a drop a higher volume to target certain sinuses, but the important bit is a higher dose. I've been looking at a lot of young uh, children to come to me with allergic rhinitis, and quite often I'd like to medically manage them before I suggest anything further. So we'll do a skin prick test. We'll analyze what they're allergic to. We'll put an environmental plan together. And then I'll say, well, let's use this topical steroid. And the look on the parent's face is always, well, my GP's already giving me that. But sometimes simply recommending a mometazone twice a day or a trial of flexinase. And after four weeks, dropping it to the once a day dose is very effective. And then using these bursts of steroids. And I think sometimes we write off steroids without realizing that we're underdosing steroids. The next thing is, and we've mentioned this already, is are we getting the steroids to where they have to go? And if you look into a nose where the turbinates are touching the septum, if you look into a sinus case where the polyps are coming out the nostrils, do you believe a topical steroid is going to work? And the answer is no. And if you've done a good sinus operation, but you unfortunately had a middle terminate that lateralized, or a maxillary entrostomy that's closed a little, the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you really delivering the steroids to where they need to go? And that's why I have a very low threshold in recalcitrant disease to use big single cavity surgery, not to cure patients, but to allow the proper delivery of topical steroids. So when we think topical steroids, think dose, and keep asking yourself, am I delivering the steroid to where it needs to go? Thank you for your time, Larry. Please tune in to ENT Expert Opinion for further podcasts uh, throughout the series.